So please, O oh Lord, bless the reading of your word, bless the study of your word, and give us the strength to carry forward some of these things that we will discuss into the world so that we are better carriers of your gospel message. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your grace. Thank you so much. Thank you for your love. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Okay. Well, Andrew, I don't know where you went, but that's just not fair because that is also one of my favorite songs, and it gets me. It kind of stirs me up a little bit, and now I'm already nervous enough, and now I'm all stirred up. But that's okay. We'll, we'll get through it together. Taking a break from Galatians. Certainly didn't want to mess up anything Jake has started there. He's doing such a good job with that. There was no reason for me to interject anything into that. So taking a break from Galatians, but not from the New Testament. We're going to look at a, 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 an event that, that has a little bit of mystery about it, possibly. Um, certainly it has in my life and in my study in the past. And hopefully today, at least it's clear, just the study of this has cleared it up for me. And hopefully maybe I can shed a little bit of light on it for anyone here that, that still has questions. It's the transfiguration of Jesus. And we're going to look at a Mark 9. Really, really we're going to start in 8. But it's, it's, the basis is Mark 9, 2 through 9. But we'll start in 8 when we get there. And I want to think through this event in the life of Jesus so that, uh, that we, we uh, um, can hopefully see uh, the, the meaning of it for then and walk away with it, the meaning for what it can help and do for us now. This moment in time was on a high mountain. It was one of those moments in the life of Jesus that, that uh, as I said, left me baffled. And maybe I'm just dense, though. Maybe it, it's, you know, I haven't had a good teaching. We'll see. But recently, I read some, some work that uh, really answered some of those questions. So with the life of Jesus on earth, we, we can't be too surprised by the miraculous events, right? I mean, he was God on earth. This is what he did. This is who he was. He, he brought God to earth for 33 years for some specific reasons, as we well know. And so, so these miraculous events aren't necessarily a surprise. However, this particular event, the transfiguration on the mountain, is one that is, is sometimes overlooked as a miraculous event. It's, uh, at least in my life of, of study, it hasn't been... Um, a bright shining star that it should be. And, and, and that's too bad because after I have walked my way through this in the last few weeks, it's come to my attention the way I believe it to be one of the greatest miracles of all. Other than the, the resurrection itself, it, it's right up there. This is an amazing thing that happened and it needs to be seen that way. So let's look at it. It's, it's, there are three times in the scripture that it's, it's uh, told about. So Matthew 17, Mark 9, and Luke 9. And then also John mentions it actually in 1 John and, and even in his, his gospel. He makes note 
of it. He doesn't necessarily teach on it, but he makes note of it. We'll get to that. So it's not a, a small matter for, for the disciples themselves. So let's start. Let's start, though, in chapter 8, because there's something that happens here in 8 that leads up to this event. And, and so it's important for us to get this, this full context. So we're going to start in 8, verse 27. And we're going to go through 9, verse, verse uh, 12, 10, somewhere in there. So bear with me. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and, and, the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake in the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Chapter 9. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to him Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good that we are here. Let's make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So, that, so they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. So, let me summarize the setting here. 
Jesus has been moving and traveling with his disciples. They come north. They come to Caesarea Philippi, which is in the northern border of, of Israel. It's a mountainous. It's a mountainous region. region and and in the, it's kind of in the foothills of what is known as Mount Hermon, Mount Bashan, sometimes called. But Mount Hermon is, is really the highest point there. I think it, if, uh, I didn't write it down, but I think it's around 9,000 feet in height. It's a big hill. It's, it's, it's pretty intense. So they've come to this high region, and, and it's, it's no mistake. And we'll, we'll move through that. We'll get to that. But it's no mistake that he's there to make this announcement. What's happening is Jesus has, has uh, brought them to this point, and as they're traveling to Caesarea Philippi, he asks them, who do people say I am? So they answer him, and of course, you know, Peter jumps up and, and uh, uh, says, uh, they say, you are, the, you are the Christ. No, Peter says from his heart that you are the Christ. And from that point, if you look at Matthew, the, the uh, corresponding scripture in Matthew, Jesus, that's where Jesus says that he will build his church on that rock. And the rock is that declaration that he is Christ, that he is God on earth. And, and they continue, and, and as uh, <laughs> Peter is, is want to do, as they move forward, Jesus is, is uh, describing, from that point forward, is describing what's going to happen next. This is where Jesus makes the turn. He turns from, from teaching and, and ministering to now he has set his face toward Jerusalem. In a few months, he's going to die. And he begins to explain that and teach that to his disciples. And, and uh, um, Peter's not having it. Um, Peter's confession in chapter 8 that Jesus is the Christ is the high point of chapter 8. It's actually the high point of Mark's gospel. Everything leads up to this declaration, and then from that point, everything leads down from that declaration, meaning back to the cross, headed to the cross. Jesus had a... He had, traveled to this northernmost border country for a purpose. It appears he came to these foothills in Caesarea Philippi to make this declaration. Chapter 8 of Mark gives us that declaration. As a matter of fact, Jesus leads Peter. He leads him into making that declaration. And that's in verse 29, where he says, you are the Christ. That confession is also recorded in Matthew and Luke. And that's that, that is the apex. Everything from that point begins headed toward the cross. And, and that's actually a, a shocker for the disciples. Um, to acknowledge Jesus to be the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God, is to make the right judgment concerning him, of course. Peter made that judgment not for himself only, but for all the apostles and all the disciples who were following, who were followers of Christ. And he says, now, back in Matthew, let me go back there for a moment. Matthew 16, 18, Jesus says, And I tell you, you're Peter, and on this rock I will build the church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Church. That was an interesting word. That was a, that was a, a, a word that 
that should get our, our, our attention. What is this? What is this new word? And I won't get too deep in the weeds here, but, but it's the Greek word ecclesia, and there is some debate in the halls of, of theology, the halls of, of uh, Christendom, of whether it, it is uh, solely meaning called out ones, or does it also mean assembly? assembly of the called out ones. And there's some debate about that. And we won't go too far into that for, for uh, our discussion here. I'm just going to kind of co- focus on, on the called out ones. That, because as an assembly, we are gathered here as this church as an assembly. However, the church fully is not all here, right? So the church can't be just totally an assembly. It has to mean a little more. The called out ones, that fits. That fits very well because there are people all over the world who are children of God, who are called out, who are called of God. So for, for, uh, for that way of thinking, keeping that, that way of thinking in our minds, he intends to communicate the whole idea of a group of his believers who are called out from the world to be sought and light to a dark world. He's not intending to communicate a single group of assembled believers meeting in a single location like Jerusalem or Rome or anywhere else. It's the whole big idea of his believers bound together and identifying as a unified group. The teaching that Christians have been called from the world into a relationship with Christ is profuse in New Testament literature. Acts 2.39, 1 Corinthians 1, 26-29, Ephesians 4.1, and there are others. And these texts complement the meaning of the original term rendered church in the New Testament as called out ones. So, now that we kind of have that straight, Jesus declares this truth to be the foundation of his called out believers as a recognized group of people in the earth, okay? So this, this is, again, he's setting his face toward Jerusalem, but he's making this declaration that the church is now an entity, an organization. It is a thing. Previously, it has been disciples. Previously, it has been, it has been uh, his inner group, together and it's been loose but here he's making a stand he's saying there's a church there's an assembly of called out ones and and this is the truth that i'm basing it on is that i am the christ the anointed one these are the folks who will be his ambassadors to carry his gospel message forward after he's gone And as we see in chapter 8, he begins to teach the disciples that he's about to cut out. He's headed out. He's headed back to the, he's headed back to Jerusalem and to the cross. And then it's kind of working on their hearts and minds. We'll see that here in just a minute. And we'll see it right now. And that's, it was devastating to them. They're just not, they're not handling this well. And most especially Peter. Peter always, you know, he tends to jump forward, has something to say. And he does, and, and as Peter kind of freaks out in this fit of terror and takes Jesus aside and says, no way, no way I'll let that happen. Well, 
you know, he, he begins blocking the path for Jesus and Jesus calls him out on it. And, and, and I don't think Peter necessarily intended to be a, a, a stumbling block or a roadblock, but, but that's exactly what happened. And when Jesus tells him, get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on God's interest, but on man's. See, Peter was committed to the glory, but he wasn't committed to the cross. He's having a hard time with it. This is the introduction. This was the introduction of the scandal of the death of Christ, which to the Jews and, and all of his group here are Jews, is a stumbling block. This is a problem for them. See, his group of people had always been thinking that, that as the Messiah, he's bringing the kingdom now. He's bringing a new, a new way of life for Israel, meaning he's going to dispel the Romans and Israel will rise again to be the great power that, that the prophets had said that it will become. And that's what's in their heads. That's why they're, they're thinking some of the things they're thinking. But Jesus, of course, has something different to say. He's got something different going on and he has a whole different way of thinking about it and that's why Peter kind of kind of just freaks out over this. But because of that, and if, if Peter's feeling it, you know the rest of them are too. This is not, this is not something that just Peter just happens to be the, the, the speaker. He happens to be the guy that, that, that lets it all come out and, and speak to the situation. So Jesus, in his infinite love, in his mercy, he does something for them. First off, in, in verse 38, on the same day, the same time, the same place, he says, the Son of Man, this is toward the end of 38, the Son of Man will also come in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So he's given them a tidbit that, yeah, this is bad, this looks bad, it's gonna be bad, there's great suffering coming, but after the suffering comes the glory. Then comes the glory. So it's difficult for them. It's difficult for them to handle. It's difficult for them to, to, to get their heads around it. And, and then he does something else. This is, this is the, the point where, where for his most inner group, he takes John and, and um, Peter and James up on the high mountain. He just takes those three and he goes up there and, and he, uh, he, he changes in front of them. So let's look at chapter nine, verse two. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves and he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Wow, what a trip. So here they are, these guys who are now, have had their world rocked. They are thinking differently than than they were, were when they were making the trip to Caesarea Philippi. Now Jesus has taken them up on a mountain and he's given them this vision. He's giving them 
something to hold on to. Why? Why the vision? And he's, he's anchoring them. To anchor them in confidence of the glory to follow the suffering. And let me repeat that. To anchor them in confidence for the glory to follow the suffering. This is the visible revelation of the nature of Christ. Every gospel is written that you may know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And here is the greatest evidence given on the pages of the New Testament prior to his resurrection. You remember that God said to Moses, no man can see my face and live. That's Exodus 33. So I'll show you my back parts, Moses said. Moses said back to him, if you don't show me your glory, I'm not going to lead this people. You know, Moses, my goodness. He and Peter were a lot alike sometimes. God says, I'll show you my back parts. So he tucked Moses up into the rock and he gave him a small glimpse of his glory because the full glory would have consumed him, would have destroyed him. The glorious appearances of God in the Old Testament are no less stunning than what we just see here on this mountain because they are partial. They're no less divine because they are confined or limited or restrained so that they don't destroy the viewer. But in every case, it's to strengthen their faith that God is there, that God is present. The living God has not remained silent, and though he's invisible, he has made himself visible here on this mountain. He's not always shrouded in darkness. He is unveiled in shining light, but never has God revealed himself so magnificently and so precisely as in the passage just read when the glory shines through Christ. Christ is in himself as the God-man, the purest revelation of God. And here, that revelation is supernaturally intensified. So here was the evidence that Jesus was God. They had, they, he has been teaching them, he has, they've been walking with him, and he gets to, he shows these guys, these three, that it's all true. It's absolutely true. He is the bright, and Hebrews 1 says, he is the brightness of the Father's glory. He is God manifest. But that's all veiled through his life, right? I mean, his life is, is, uh, uh, is, is a show of that as well. And, and his disciples, they've come to that conclusion that he is God. That, you know, they came to it on the walk up. And the disciples... They, they got to that point by what he had done, what he had, the miracles he had performed, the things he had done, and by what he had said. They came to the conclusion, you're the Christ, you're the son of the living God. But as this thing started going downhill from that pinnacle and headed toward the cross and suffering and rejection, including their own suffering, they needed something more. They needed a little more faith. They needed this, this to hang on to, and the Lord knew it. He knew, he knew himself. They needed sight, and so he gave them this vision. He gave this to them. This totally changed these men. Peter wrote, okay, so, so here is, is uh, one, one part that's not necessarily the telling of the story, but Peter mentions it. Peter wrote, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He said, we don't follow cunningly devised fables when we speak unto you concerning Christ. 
We're not giving you some fairy tale. We're not telling you something that's not true. He said when we were with him in the holy mountain. That's 2 Peter 1, 16 through 18. And then John says, what we write unto you concerning the word of life, we've seen, we've touched, our hands have handled. He's been manifest to us. And that's, that's in uh, 1 John. And then John 1, 14, we beheld his glory, the glory as the only begotten of God. So even, even the, the whole story is not told in these other two passages, it's mentioned. So this is it's a big thing. Okay, real quick. I want to comment on Moses and Elijah a little bit. In verse 4, Elijah appeared to them along with Moses. Well, that's no small matter, is it? I mean, we've got the, the Son of God, and they know it. They absolutely know that he is. They had already made that confession, but now they see it. They see it. They see him in brilliance, in bright, shining brilliance. And they also see these other two guys, Moses and Elijah. Well, how did they know? How do they know who these, these guys are? Well, they're, it's, it's just probably obvious from the context that they're standing in. But aren't they dead? Well, yeah, they are. Aren't they, are they, they glorified spirits in heaven? Well, they are. But they, they were given this moment, the Lord put them there at this point in time to speak with Jesus and that these three guys witness it. Now, why? Why, why three? Well, it's actually upholding the law of Moses. The law of Moses, you have to have two or three witnesses. And this is upholding and fulfilling that law of Moses that there are three men witnesses. Now we're going to turn that around a little bit because there are also now in this heavenly place, in this, this vision, this heavenly vision, the witness of Moses, the witness of Elijah, and the witness of God himself. So we have witnesses on the side of, of man and we have witnesses on the side of the spiritual world. It's significant. It's not a, a small matter. It's a significant matter, and it means something. So you've got these two great minds, these two great men of, of God, and they're speaking with, with they're talking uh, uh, with Jesus, and what are they talking about? Well, we go back to, I think it's Luke, that uh, they're talking to him. Let's see. Luke 9.31, two men were talking with him, and they were Moses and Elijah who were appearing in glory. They were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So now they're speaking of spiritual things. You have the spiritual side, and you have the man's side. Well, the men are freaked out. We saw that a minute ago, that, that Peter jumps up and wants to build, build tabernacles, wants to build a monuments to all three of them in this high place. In the spirit side, on the spiritual side of this, they're speaking to Jesus about his departure, about the cross, his return to heaven. This is a major point. This is a monster point in the life of, of Christ, certainly, but in the life of the church. These are events that, that are not small. See, these are the greatest, these two guys are, are the greatest leaders 
of, his, of, of Israel in Israel's history, right? I mean, think about it. Moses, Moses was probably the greatest general, if you think about it. Yeah, it was certainly God who, who drowned Pharaoh's army, but Moses was the victor by divine power. He was the victor and, and he was uh, the authority. He was a king in authority, though he never had a throne. And in message, he was a prophet. In service to God, he was every bit a priest, serving God on behalf of the people. So the greatest. Elijah, he could, uh, he could stand with Moses because he fought against every violation of the law. Elijah battled the, na the nation's idolatry, and he battled it with great courage and words of judgment, and he validated his preaching with miracles. So between the two of them, you have the greatest spiritual men of Israel standing there speaking with, with the God-man. And you've got our three, our three fellows there in uh, uh, some sort of a panic mode and not knowing what to say because it even says that they were terrified. So this moment in time needs to be framed. We've got to frame it as to to what was it about? And there's a, a, a couple of things. So again, just to remind us why the vision. This vision was to anchor them, to anchor these guys in confidence of the glory to follow the suffering. This is the assurance by sight that God gave them. He got, gave them the assurance that Jesus is who he says he is and that, that the glory will follow the resurrection. So to, to finish up on that point, look at verse 7. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. So now this is seemingly a rebuke. Poor Peter. He, he sticks his foot in his mouth, and he jumps and he, before he thinks. And now he, he was rebuked by Jesus, and now he's being rebuked by God the Father. Listen to him. It's what comes out of the Father's mouth. So hopefully Peter walks away with, it, with, with uh, an understanding that he just needs to slow down a minute, for one thing. Okay, we're almost done. And none of this that I've just said is probably real surprising. And that's good. That means you've had some good teaching. But there's one more thought. One more thought I want to explore that made me sit down and ponder this whole event. Even though we know this transfiguration event, the geography is unfortunately ignored. It's an oversight that prevents us from understanding the impact of what Jesus said and did in a region theologically tethered to the spiritual enemies of God. This whole region of Caesarea Philippi is uh, it's a city located in the northern part of what had been called Bashan, at the foot of Mount Hermon. Jesus asked the disciples a famous question there, just as we saw, who do people say I am? Well, there's a, a reason for him asking it, not just so that his disciples come to this conclusion, but it's also to make a statement because in the narrative, especially in Matthew, he tells, he says, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not be able to withstand it. 
Well, the apostate king Jeroboam, he built an idolatrous worship center there, there in Caesarea Philippi. That's 1 Kings chapter 12. And the city adopted the worship of Baal, practiced by the Canaanites since the days of Joshua in their city, Belgad. Same area, same place. So in Jesus' day, Caesarea Philippi was also called Paneus. And that's because it was dedicated to the worship of the Greek god Pan, the, the god of the wild, the god of the wilderness, of shepherds. So this is a place that is spiritually dark. He took his disciples to a spiritually dark place to make a spiritually spiritual declaration of light. So for his disciples, it's to bolster them. It's to pick them up. But here he's taking them to the gates of hell, so to speak. And if you notice, and, and I know you've been taught this, that 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 statement that the gates of hell will not, will not uh, withstand this. The gates are a defensive structure. They're not an offensive structure. So the church, he is saying, Jesus is saying the church is the aggressor. The church is the one pushing into the gates of hell. The church is the one who will rescue through the gospel message. It's not hell attacking the church. It's the other way around. Gates are defensive. It's well known to scholars that Baal in the Old Testament is a counterpart to the devil in the New Testament. In Ugaritic, the Ugarit, which was a section up there of, of people who had similar beliefs to the Israelites but, but differed in, in, in some very serious ways. One of Baal's titles in Ugaritic is Baalzebul Ars, which means Prince Baal of the Underworld, from which the New Testament Beelzebul and Beelzebub derive. This declaration of Jesus as the Christ in Caesarea Philippi and then the transfiguration on Mount Hermon is a cosmic confrontation with Jesus challenging the authority of the Lord of the dead. So we see on the side of mankind, he is taking these men so that he bolsters them. He's just told them he's headed to the cross and gonna die. They, they push back, their hearts are broken, and then he gives these men the transfiguration, the sight, the vision to lift them back up so they can be strong for what's coming ahead. But he's also there fighting a spiritual battle. He's fighting something that we can't see, that we don't see. But he's there just as much for the spiritual world as he is for, the, for his disciples. He goes to ground zero in this biblical demonic geography to announce that Bashan will be defeated. It's the gates of hell that are under assault and they will not hold up against the church. And this imagery is striking, it's, 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 it's amazing. The meaning is just as transparent. I'm putting the hostile powers of the unseen world on notice. I've come to earth to take back what is mine. The kingdom of God is at hand. When Jesus chose to go to Mount Hermon to be transfigured, he was claiming it for the kingdom of God. As the gospel chronologies tell us, 
These events provoked his death. This is the kind of thing. When he began making these announcements that he is the Christ, that's when, that's when the priests and the scribes really started getting bit out of shape and, and started plotting his death. So here, this point is the linchpin. It's the linchpin. Chapter 9, verse 1. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. So this moment has now triggered something in the world that, that drives Christ to the cross. <laughs> yeah, well... And maybe I'm a little crazy. I don't know. Maybe maybe that's all nuts, and I'm reading more into it. I don't know. It it, it seems pretty remarkable that it's all kind of coming together at one point, one time. And what Andrew read early in the service, Ephesians chapter three. And I'll finish here. This is Paul writing to the church at and around Ephesus to help them make firm their foundation of faith and belief in Christ. Okay, so this is, is, is Paul giving the churches around Ephesus more information just to settle them, to, to give them an understanding of what this is all about. So verse 7 of chapter 3 of Ephesians. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which give, was given me by the working of his power to me, Though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord. The Lord Jesus made a very clear announcement to his three disciples on, on Mount Hermon. He is the Christ. And that same announcement was made to all the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places who would also see and hear exactly what he was saying and what happened. And, and Paul brings that out right there in Ephesians 3. The Mount of Transfiguration is a great and mighty miracle witnessed by three men and all spiritual enemies of God. If there was any question that Jesus of Nazareth was the long prophesied anointed one, now that question is answered in boldness and very, very clear. Now, with no doubt whatsoever, both men and angels know exactly who Jesus truly is. It's right there in front of everybody. So, who is, who is he? Who is this Jesus? Good, I'm glad you asked. God is, in his manifold wisdom, acted in time to come to earth as the second person of the Godhead, born of a woman. He lived a perfect life, without sin, so that when he was offered as a blood sacrifice by the spiritual and human enemies of God, he provided the perfect payment for sin, the sins of anyone who believes in, 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 in him as Savior. Anyone sins. 
are covered by his blood sacrifice if you believe who he is. He stood in the gap for us. If you've not repented of your sins and you've not turned to Christ as your Lord, I urge you to do that now. Do that today. There is no time after this. This moment you're breathing is the only time you have. I urge you to do it now. We gather here at Indian Creek every week to worship this God of ours. And any one of us here is happy to, to, to tell you or find someone who can tell you who this Jesus is. So please, don't let another day go by that you don't come to know who Jesus is. Please come to know him. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much. Thank you for your graciousness in, in giving us reassurance. Not only do you reassure those in the Bible, not only did you reassure them, but you reassure us as well, oh Lord. And I am so grateful for that. I pray, Father, you continue to, to bless us as we finish out this day. Please bless this congregation as we, we seek to, to do your will in, in our building project, in our, in our way of life. I pray, Father, that, that we are truly seeking your face. One more time, oh Lord, my God, I pray. If there's anyone here today, anyone who hasn't turned to you, who hasn't brought you into their lives, who hasn't accepted your free gift, I pray, oh Lord, this is the day. Please move in their hearts and move now. Thank you, Christ, for your love and your grace. It's in your name I pray. Amen.